The passage we're reading today is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 23 to 31. And as is our custom, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I was preparing today, I came across a story that I'm sure has been used many times. You might have even heard it. I'm sure it's bounced around some pulpits, but it's a good one. This is how Mark Strauss tells it. He says, a rich man stood up in church once to recount how God had blessed him in remarkable ways. And he talked about how as a young man, he was sitting in church as the offertory plate was going by, and he had his first paycheck in his pocket. His first job, first paycheck. It wasn't much, but at that moment, that's all he had, and he was proud of it. And as the offertory plate went by, he heard a voice whispering, give it all. And he thought, he resisted, and the offertory plate got closer. Give it all, give it all. And eventually, as it came, weaving its way one more row away, he took out that check, signed it over to the church, and put his whole first paycheck into the offertory. And he explained to the congregation from that point on how much God had blessed him immeasurably. His success in businesses, his wealth had grown, his family had been blessed. And he sat down after giving that testimony, probably to a number of amens. And as he sat down, there was a woman behind him who leaned forward and whispered, I dare you to do it again. How hard it is for a rich man who has been given so much to relinquish it all for the kingdom of God. We live in, by some measures, the wealthiest country in the world. By GDP, eighth wealthiest by GDP per capita. Median adult wealth, we're 25th, 79,274 dollars. Mean or average wealth per capita, we're number one, 505,000 dollars. If you have 10,000 dollars to your name, you are in the top 34% of people in the world. 
And if you have $100,000 in net worth, you are in the top 11% of people in the world. The very fact that we have so many ways to measure wealth highlights its central place in our social conscience. Even if you go outside of traditional measures, like GDP and per capita income, to some alternative ones, it's rare to find the U.S. outside the top 25. Many of the poorest among us have a standard of living that outranks kings did in the past. Now, I understand wealth is relative to the time and place you live. But let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that the lessons and warnings and problems that Christ preaches about are not our problems. It's easy to look at Scripture with a bit of... to say, well, praise the Lord, I don't have to worry about that. Oh, that person in the Bible, oof. They were messed up, but at least I don't have to worry about that. I might have 99 of my own problems to deal with, but too much money, that is not one of them. I can skip that lecture. In our passage, the disciples are astonished. You have to understand, in the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament Jews saw riches as a blessing from God. It was God's favor bestowed on someone and as a blessing it was overflowing because money begets power influence privilege comfort all the advantages one could want sounds a lot like today but rather than an advantage to living correctly we look in the passage and christ seems to indicate that possessions and wealth are a disadvantage and a hindrance to us. I mean, we all know since we've been kids and we've heard that money can't buy happiness. Money can't buy love. Money can't buy peace. But we often live our lives as if, if it wants to try, who am I to get in the way? I mean, wouldn't it be so much easier to live for Christ if we didn't have to worry about all the living part? How am I going to pay the bills? What will the children eat? Can I afford to buy my prescription this month? How are we going to afford child care? Do I have enough work hours this week? Can I retire? Do the kids need a tutor? Should we add a family car? How many cup holders should be in the car? Which sports package or streaming service should I get? What color for the new bathroom? Which Bluetooth-enabled appliance for the kitchen remodel? If I only had enough money or the right things, I wouldn't have to worry. If I could just have enough, everything would be worked out And I could focus on living for Christ. I offer to you today that the gospel shines brightest. God's grace is felt the strongest in the dark, the depths, the difficulties of living. 
Christ tells us to fear not, for he has overcome the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. Having money, having wealth, I'm not here to tell you, is a sin. But neither is it a divine anointing, an announce, a blessing, announcing to the world that you are favored by God, a badge of righteousness for us to flaunt. Jesus is clear. Wealth is a stumbling block to salvation. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The first way we see this is wealth and its gains give us a false foundation. In the book of Job, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answers, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. See, Satan was banking on an age-old truth about us. Let's see how much you fear God when your blessings are taken away. And to his credit, and by the grace of God, Job endures, but it is such a remarkable feat of faith that we have him in that pantheon of one-named celebrities. Even more so, his name is associated with the virtue where we talk about Hercules and Herculean strength, Job, the patience of Job. For us mere mortals, the truth is more simple. We're more predictable. Our eyes might be fixed on heaven, but our feet are on a false foundation. As James Edwards noted, a person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. Consider the parable of the rich fool in Luke. Then he told them a parable. A rich rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night... Your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Not only did the rich fool plan to build the foundation of his life out of his wealth that would be gone the next day, But a closer examination shows us his attitude has an even more problematic view. The rich man is putting his hope and his faith for the future, his hope of security in accumulated wealth. If only I can have this much in this big of a barn, then I can take it easy. His security and hope for abundant life is anchored in his desire for money and wealth. And he ends up with nothing. 
In this way, wealth is a profitless substitute for our faith. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Too often we hold on to what we have like an insurance policy. I'm just going to keep this much back until those first blessing checks start rolling in. And, and then, and then I'll let it go. You might say, David, this is nice, but that's just not how the world works. I would answer, this world is not going to keep working for very long. And I know what's on the other side, and it is not the wealth that we have. In Mark 8, verse 36 and 37, we're told, For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? It's not wrong to want to enjoy life, to enjoy creation. But we have to be careful that we're not worshiping the creation over the creator. Because there is nothing under the sun that we can use to buy our way to Jesus. In fact, wealth often has the opposite effect. Wealth has a disorienting influence on our value system. Earlier in that same letter to Timothy, Paul warns against the dangers of wealth. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. As a kid, I remember having a toy that you blew it up, and I guess it was kind of like a punching bag. And it had something in the bottom that weighted it down. So you could smack that thing as hard, and we tried. And you could smack that thing as hard as you wanted, and it would eventually pop back up. And the trick, well, there really wasn't a trick. It came down to this, the weight, whether it was sand or whatever that you put down in the bottom. But I'm reminded of something in Matthew 6, where Christ tells us, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal. And here's the key part. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, the problem is what the world sees as right side up is upside down from what God wants. And so we have a choice Like that toy, where are you putting the weight? Are you putting it in the things of the world? Or are you putting it in God's values? We tend to hold on to things we love. So even though we might say, oh, the love of money. Well, good. I've got a lot. I don't love it, though, so it's all good, right? But the things we love, we tend to hold on to. The truth is when we accumulate wealth, we lock ourselves into this constant struggle. The more weight we put in the things of the earth, 
the more we fill up that end of the bag, the harder it is to keep our value system oriented towards God. The immutable laws of nature take over, not just gravity, but our human nature. We get pulled by strings of selfishness, pride, greed, coveting, all things anchored on that side. And no matter how we pull and try to follow God, it's pulling us back the other way. Christ himself gives us a stark warning in Luke 6, beginning with verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. To you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. How easily we get attached to material riches and lose sight of things with eternal importance. Despite all the comforts that our wealth gives us, we cannot take it with us. And when we stand before God, stripped of everything, our helpless condition is evident. And those who have clung to wealth, instead of clinging to Jesus, will be left with nothing. This is a really hard truth. Or at least it should be. And there have been plenty of attempts and, and, and scholarly analysis to maybe soften the blow and chip away at it. Maybe, maybe just the eye of the needle was actually a, a gate that Jesus was talking about and, and it's meant for just people. And so if you've got your camel and the stuff on it, then, then that means you've got to take it off and the camel's got to you know, go through on his knees. And, and, and Jesus has just given us a word picture to show us that the way is narrow, we need to prostrate ourselves with humility before God to enter his kingdom. The rich man would need to leave his cargo behind, or at least put it aside in the right order and go through and then have to bring it with him slowly later. Or maybe camel is a mistranslation. There's a, there's a Greek word that means, that means rope that is really similar, and, and you still can't fit a rope through a needle, but, you know, if you... It just means you have to break it down and unwind it, and, and it's an analogy for how we have to strip away all the extra things of ourselves and, and, and down to our bare, bare essential and, and then go through. And the whole rope will eventually fit, but you've got to just unspool it. I don't think that's what Christ is saying. I don't think, just in my research, archaeological things show that. I would humbly submit we only have to look at the disciples' reaction to Christ to see what he's talking about. They were already astonished, and then when he says that, they're even more astonished. You see, Christ is presenting a clear impossibility. It's absurd. It's kind of funny. The largest animal in that land fitting through the smallest opening imaginable. Like a surrealist painting superimposing two real things in a way that is absurd. 
The message is simply that salvation requires accepting our helpless condition. In Revelation chapter 3, this warning is given to the church in Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you from my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. This isn't just that the church needed to go get the right stuff. Yes, they were prideful when really they were wretched. Yes, they thought they had position when they were to be pitied. Yes, they thought they had wealth when they were really poor. And yes, they thought they were intelligent and smart and knew it when they were really blind, but all of us are. And we can't, in ourselves, get any of those things. We have to turn to Christ. It takes only one thing, like wealth, to keep you from God's kingdom. For the rich young man in Mark, it was his wealth and all the things that came with it. He asked, what much did I do to inherit eternal life, implying some level of achievement? He's focused on what he needs to gain instead of what he needs to lose. Selling all his possessions for him would be basically dying to his old life. Position, gone. Power, gone. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to sell all their possessions. He calls them to follow him and to leave behind whatever is holding you back. It goes on, they were even more astonished, saying to one another, well, who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Even the disciples here, they don't really get the lesson that's being taught. Jesus isn't telling them what needs to be done. He's telling them what they need to accept. Like so many of Christ's teachings, it's not so much just the actions that we do, but the heart that produces those actions. And so with man, salvation is impossible. But key here, salvation is impossible with all men, rich and poor alike. Peter, always earnest and eager, steps up and says, See, we've already done all this. Whew, we are the first ones to it. Look at me, look what we did. Sure, there's probably a little bit of pride, but Peter is also eager to follow Christ. But again, he doesn't get it. He sees it as something to do, 
acceptance of our helplessness certainly comes easier to those who have little. The last shall be first. But it's still required of all of us. Now, some of you here, perhaps those of a particular engineering persuasion, when you first read the part about the camel and the eye of the needle, it's almost a challenge, right? A problem to be solved. Hmm, so it can't be done, huh? All right, hold my coffee for a second. Let me look at it. Can we cut some hair off? Right? It's like an extreme edition of fitting that oversized sofa through the sliding doors when you're helping a friend move. It got in here. It's got to get out, right? But if you hear one thing today, hear this. Salvation is not a problem to be solved. It's not a spiritual game of Tetris. It is a gift to be received and held on to, and you cannot do that if your hands are busy holding something else. If we of the disciples have any doubt, we've only got to look at verse 27 when it says, with God, all things are possible. There's a song I grew up singing. I don't know the artist or I would credit them, uh, we sang it in chapel all the time. And I never got why preachers want to sing during their sermon, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> Just because it's, it's, it feels weird reading it. But the song is called, All of You, None of Me, and it goes, <clears throat> All of you, none of me. Is the heart cry of my soul, it's what I long for, crush my will, and set me free, so I can live above the world, and let my heart soar, take your flame. And purify, you must live, and I must die, fill me now, so all may see, all of you, and none of me. At the heart of that song is this idea, with God all things are possible. The last line, fill me now, so all may see none of me, all of you but none of me. Talk about flipping the world's values upside down. Don't fill me up so others can see everything I have. Fill me up so everyone can see God. We have to replace what we've been looking to as a Savior with Christ. You've probably heard it said before, there's no atheists in everyday life. Sure, a person can proclaim to be atheist or debate philosophy and theology and claim it as an intellectual endeavor, 
But in the day-to-day existence and execution of our lives, we all worship something. David Foster Wallace was an essayist, a pop culture philosopher in the 90s, certainly no fan of church or religion, but he captured the essence of the human condition well when he put it this way, and I'll read it in its entirety just because I, I don't think I could paraphrase. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things and they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough and you will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before people finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and need even more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware of what you're doing, and the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating this way. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth, comfort, and personal freedom The freedom for all of us to be lords of our tiny, skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. He goes on to try to make sense of this and unfortunately and predictably falls pretty far from the true solution. But he got the problem right. We don't need modern philosophers and self-help books to help us sort out the answer We have here in the Word of God, page after page, story after story, and verse after verse that points us to Christ. And the simple, radical message found when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, salvation is a gift. It's not earned. You can't hedge your bet. You cannot buy better odds or more raffle tickets or pay early, pay more money for early boarding or an extra bag or pre-order the deluxe special edition. Salvation is a gift we have to accept with open arms because as long as you insist on trying to hold on to other things, it will slip out of your hand. When Christ says these words in John chapter 14, he's answering Thomas's question, Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Though Jesus has been teaching them the whole time, showing them in his very presence and person. And so in application today, what is the way that Christ is calling us to follow in? What does the life that follows Christ look like? First, Christ calls us to live a life defined by purposeful sacrifice. 
In Mark, he says, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. See, Christ isn't calling us to have a performative sacrifice. It's not the act of selling possessions that was to make the rich man holy. The condition is not the goal. Jesus doesn't say, be poor for poor's sake. We learned last week, even the disciples had, some, had families, homes, possessions. But rather to enter the kingdom of God, we have to put off all the things that entangle us. And an honest assessment of ourselves reveals we have plenty of strings still attached. As Mark Strauss put it, it is true, of course, that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell their possessions and give to the poor. Yet those of us who might breathe a sigh of relief at this exception are precisely the ones to whom Jesus is speaking. In other words, all of us. If we're to live a life that follows Christ, let's examine 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9, where Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's talking about giving here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We understand here that wealth is not always measured in money. You cannot be richer than the throne of heaven. And yet Christ gave that up for us. Secondly, Christ calls us to complete surrender. The list in Mark is more than just individual things that you, let, that you find. Because otherwise, you might find yourself thinking, you know, there's some days I'd be happy to take a break from my brother. Or the fields I'm working in. But no, when he's speaking of this, he's saying, when you leave your house, you are leaving comfort, shelter, rest, safety, provision for your family. When you leave your family, those are bonds that go deeper than any others. When you leave your children, you are leaving responsibility, legacies. That part of your heart that lives outside your body that is so vulnerable. Can you walk away from that for Christ? When you leave your fields, you leave your source of income. The investment, the time and money and effort that you've put in to building something. How many times have you ever stuck around just because you're in too deep now and need to see it finished? Can you walk away? When we're faced with the complete nature of our surrender, we should feel something akin to the shock the disciples felt. And maybe a little empathy for the rich man who went away grieving. But in the same light, let's consider Paul in Philippians chapter 3, who after listing everything he'd gained in his life says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. See, the last part of the life that follows Christ is meaningful reward. Christ says, he acknowledges that following him will entail persecution, 
but it's conditioned on the promise that all that is lost will be regained a hundred times more. And if you don't find it in full measure in this world, it'll be in the next. This promise speaks to the nature of the spiritual family, the body of Christ, the church. If you have to leave your earthly family behind for Christ, you'll find it made up a hundredfold in the body of Christ. What a comfort for the follower. But I think also a reminder to us as the church of our role to love and care for one another and embrace each other. Are we reaching out? Are we embracing? Are we being brothers, sisters, mothers to new and old believers alike? Are we providing for the care of those in our midst? When I was young, I looked at statements like Paul made in Philippians. And I chalked it up to Paul being Paul. I can't be that. Not only is it just an uncommon grace, but they don't make people like that anymore. But the truth is, and the convicting convicting truth, is that this spirit that Paul shows there is happening all around the world. It's found in the courage and boldness of believers, like many Muslims who come to know Christ and face losing everything. They face death, public shame, often beaten, exiled, sent away from their families. They can lose their children who are considered in the community to be orphans. You have no parents. This grace is found in those who go on the mission field. Some of them make the ultimate sacrifice. Karen Watson was an IMB missionary killed in Iraq in 2004 in a drive-by shooting. She had joined the International Mission Board one year before. She left her family, the life she built for herself over 37 years, and exchanged it for work in refugee camps, living out of a suitcase with no permanent home. The day she died, she was looking for more places to continue providing humanitarian relief. More opportunities to love the spiritual and physically lost. Just a few weeks before, she wrote this in her journal. Lord, I want to work my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own. God, what way is my path to go? Show me, and I will follow. Thomas had said to Christ, we don't know the way. How are we supposed to follow? Karen said, I don't know the way. Show me and I will follow. So what about you? What about us? Can we say those words today? Can we say, show me and I'll follow? Are you tired of chasing after things that are eating away at you? Are you willing to lay it all down at Jesus' feet? Stop clinging to the world and start clinging to him. Maybe you're already a believer and maybe you're tired. You're trying to follow, but find yourself 
popping back up every time to the way the world is. What is the Spirit telling you to leave behind? What is your one thing keeping you? In a moment, I'll pray to close us. But I invite you, if you're searching, I'll be down here. Please come down, talk to me. Whether you want to know about more about Christ, who this is, who can promise these things, whether you're just struggling with your walk and want to talk through, or maybe you want to join this church and enjoy that fellowship of the body of Christ. Please come down as the praise band plays. Let's pray. Lord, it is difficult to acknowledge our helplessness. We spend our lives trying to prevent being helpless. And yet you call us to lay everything down at your feet. And for many of us, you call that, you make that a literal call. And Lord, I pray as we go from this place today, in the words of the song, God, that we make it all of you and none of us, that we cry out from our heart, that we long for that, that you would crush our will, our resistance, and set us free. God, untether us and let us live above the world so we don't keep having to struggle and pop back up. Lord, I pray that you would take your flame and purify us. We know that you must live and we must die. And Lord, we praise you for your blessings and we pray that you would Fill us up, but not for ourselves, not for our comfort, not for this life, but so that all others can see you in our lives and none of us. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.